0: Chapter 8, Like Fort Wagner For George, the news of Jake's fight was neither surprising nor upsetting. After accepting that Jake would go to public school, he consciously decided to accept whatever happened with or to Jake without drama. He knew that there would be ups and downs and decided that in order for Jake to get the most out of the experience, he would need to learn to deal with things on his own. He had more important things to deal with now that the big change was less than three years away. He still had a lot of work to do to prepare the ranch for what was to come. Discovering how effective his homeschooling had been for Jake also gave him a great deal of confidence that Izzy would also be far ahead of her peers. After all, she was always a much more serious and attentive student than Jake ever was. Now he felt that he could push her even further. But first things first, he had to accelerate the transformation of the ranch to make sure that everything would be ready in time. As George looked down at the construction map of the ranch, he allowed his thoughts to wander, and he felt fortunate to have been as lucky as he had been over the past ten years or so. He recalled the first bit of luck that occurred not too long after his dissertation. A solar filter that he had cobbled together at the observatory to watch coronal mass ejections, also called CMEs, worked so well that the head of the astronomy department suggested that he draw up the technical specs, put together drawings, and apply for a patent. He thought that the exercise was a complete waste of time, but in order to keep his good relations with the department, he complied with detailed specs and CAD drawings for his device. He laughed as he put it all together and sent it off to the U.S. Patent Office. It was funny because the specs and drawings looked so much better than the actual device he'd been using. If only his device looked that good. He was surprised a mere six months later when a scientist from NASA had called inquiring about his device. It turns out that NASA had been trying to put together a device to do the same thing and it had constantly come up short. When their research department studied his patent application, they were very interested, to say the least. The day after the initial phone call, they sent a team of engineers to the campus to see his device in person. A week later, he received an unsolicited offer from NASA to license the technology from him. turns out that they were in a hurry to put the device on the International Space Station for their own solar research. Since the university had not officially sanctioned his research and it was not part of the school project, the deal did not require approval by the school, and he was free to make the deal. But, George being George, he included a provision for the university to receive a healthy grant for their underfunded astronomy department, a move that increased his profile on campus and ensured that he would have carte blanche when it came to his research. More importantly, the licensing deal was the first in more than 50 licenses around the world that quickly built his bank account into the millions he also received a very generous salary for consulting with the federal government on disaster preparedness in the event of a supermassive solar flare, a position he was recruited for when some of the same NASA scientists were sufficiently impressed by his dissertation to bring it up before a congressional committee. In this case, the importance of the pay, which reached well into the high six-figure range by the time he was finished, was secondary to the idea that he had a chance to change the world by helping the United States prepare for what only he seemed to know was coming. Unfortunately, the tens of billions of dollars that his preparations would have required were simply not politically expedient, and his ideas fell on deaf ears in Washington. As he recalled his last meeting in Washington, where a group of bored congressmen yawned through his passionate pleas for them to begin preparing the country for a new world, he allowed himself a slight smile, It was their response, or lack thereof, that led him to his decision to buy the ranch and transform it. The entire civilized world was going to change, and Washington was going to ignore it until it was too late, but he would be ready, and he would make sure that his children were ready. It was a few days after Izzy's second birthday, Jake was five, when he closed on the property. He had looked at several houses with property in the area with his wife a few years earlier. Of course, back then, he couldn't imagine buying even one of the small rundown houses that they looked at. He couldn't afford it on his salary. But with several million dollars in the bank and more rolling in every day, he could not only buy it, but he could also afford to transform it. His initial plan started out modestly. The property had three freshwater wells and had already been used for farming, so there were ample irrigation channels and equipment. He figured that he would add some water storage tanks, a couple of generators, and some strong fencing around the entire ranch. But then he started thinking about what the world would look like with no power, no electricity. Although he had written extensively on the subject and given numerous presentations about the big change, it never really sunk in until he looked out over his vast property, and imagined him and his kids trying to defend it. He quickly became overwhelmed as he ran doomsday scenarios through his mind. There was no question that the people who remained in cities and larger towns would die quickly. Without a robust transportation network, it wouldn't take people very long to starve to death. He figured that a large number would die in the cities in the first 30 to 60 days. There was simply no way to feed huge numbers of people without transportation. The fact that there would be no refrigeration would further exacerbate the situation, as there would be no practical way to preserve the food for slower modes of transport, assuming that such efforts could even be organized effectively. So after 30 days or so, George figured that the starving masses would begin an exodus from the cities. But where would they go? Most city dwellers were at least three to four generations removed from any sort of hunting, farming, or even fishing backgrounds. George thought that you'd have to go back to the days of the Old West to find the point where self-sufficiency was required to survive for a significant portion of society. And now, large industrialized farming conglomerates had long ago swallowed most of the small, family-owned and operated farms. Of course, The machines that powered these huge corporate farming operations would be useless, and huge swaths of produce would literally rot in the fields. So where would they go? As he pondered that question, he grew more and more anxious because he realized that people wouldn't go anywhere. Initially, there would be no mass communications about what had happened. Most of society would wait patiently for the power to return. Our society is nothing if not patient, especially when it came to waiting for others to take care of them. Even as people were starving in the streets, there would still be a majority that would cling to the idea that our government would figure out how to fix things and bring them back to normal. But there would be no normal for quite some time, George reasoned. It would take months, if not years, to restore the electrical grid alone. Since the vast majority of our lives rely on solid-state technology, those machines would be rendered permanently inoperable. No computers, no phones, no television, no radio, no internet. Police would become quickly overwhelmed, as would fire and rescue in most places. With no real sense of community in the big cities, it would be very much a free-for-all for food, water, and even medicine. Without communication, there was no way to predict how long even the most dedicated public servants would, or could, stay on the job. George decided that public services would determine the tipping point for the mass exodus. If people could no longer receive even the most basic, life-sustaining services in the cities, it would begin to occur to them that life in the cities was no longer sustainable. And then, George thought about diseases. Without power, The pumping stations that supplied the cities with clean water would be unable to operate, and the cities would quickly run out of water. With dead bodies dropping everywhere, little food, and no clean water even for flushing toilets, people weak from starvation and dehydration, it wouldn't take very long for cities to become ravaged by diseases ranging from dysentery and typhoid to other, more dangerous maladies. Huge numbers would be succumbing to common colds and the flu and then things would get worse. Without medicine to fight even the most basic ailments, people would grow withdrawn and mistrustful, as every other person was a potential disease carrier. In the confines of the big cities, there would be no way to avoid contact with others, and every encounter would carry the potential of a new infection. How long would that take, George wondered? 30 days? 60? Maybe 90 days on the outside? Some would begin to leave the cities earlier, but he determined that the real mass exodus would begin within 90 days. Then what? George thought about this question during the many weeks of sleepless nights that followed. Just as he was coming to terms with the starvation, dehydration, and disease, the more dangerous threat emerged in his mind. Without a centralized government, and without police or the military, all of which would be rendered virtually useless, either from being overwhelmed to the inevitable defections, there would always be desperate people with no regard for others who would simply steal what they wanted and needed from those less able to fend for themselves. They were the real threat. They would prey on weakness, and they would thrive on fear and terror. They would be armed, some better than others, and eventually they would organize behind charismatic and ruthless leaders. For many, these gangs would offer a way to survive. Many of those might find this new way of life was distasteful, but they would join up nevertheless, figuring that there would be time to wrestle with the morality of their actions later. At least they would be alive. And the most insidious part of this equation is that there would be few, if any other people, who could have more to offer. It's one thing to stand up and preach that stealing is wrong. But it would be another thing altogether to present a realistic alternative to the slow, agonizing death that would surely face those who remained on their own. George used this as a new starting point for his preparations. It would be easy to ensure that there was enough clean water for the ranch, and there was more than ample hunting on both the sprawling property and in the national forest that bordered the property on two sides. In addition, there was even a small lake, fed from a small tributary that held an abundance of fish, and there were the fields that had already been set up for successful farming. But defending the property and its inhabitants was another matter altogether. While he felt an overall sense of urgency about his preparations, he was in no hurry. According to his calculations, he had at least 11, maybe 12 years to get everything in place. It would be plenty of time. He would also need every bit of that time to prepare his children. He supposed that it would be easier for him if he considered this to be more of a big adventure than a desperate preparation for the end of the world. he had always been good with coining euphemisms for difficult tasks. This was no exception. After mapping out a strategy in his mind, he hired Elliot, the attorney that had helped the realtor with the sale of the property. Elliot had a small practice, but he was very familiar with the area, and after chatting with him during the closing on the property, George discovered that he was a very good business attorney. Since George's plans would require him to start and run several businesses, Elliot was perfect. Without going into details about the end of the world, George simply explained that he had begun making a considerable amount of money and he wanted to make some fairly drastic upgrades to his property. These changes would be made easier if he had a couple of businesses that were complementary to his plans. First and foremost, George figured, he'd need cement. George smiled at the memory of Elliot's expression when he emphasized that he'd need a whole lot of cement. Elliot tried to conceal his amusement, but then gave up and smiled. It turns out that he had already come up with an idea. Elliot had once represented a homeowner that wanted to sue a cement contractor for substandard work on a driveway project. And although he lost the case, he became friendly with the owner of the cement company, a small man of almost 75 years who'd been running the company since he was 25. His original location was being annexed by the state for a highway easement, and he didn't have the heart or the energy to move to a new location. So he was either going to sell the company. Or sell off all the equipment and shut down operations, but he was in no particular hurry. He put the word out to everyone he could think of, including Elliot, that his company and/or all the equipment was for sale. Both George and Elliot were pleasantly surprised when their lowball offer was accepted. It was more expensive than expected to move the facilities to George's property, but on the plus side. The sale included the contractor's license, and the business came with a built in clientele and a more than capable general manager, Rusty Springfield. It took almost six months to complete the move and get the operation up and running, but once opened, there had been nonstop business. Upslope Cement, as it was called, broke even midway through the second year of operations, and it ran smoothly in the black ever since. At the end of the second year, they added the facilities for making preformed reinforced concrete slabs, and their business doubled almost immediately. Obviously, this all suited George just fine. A more daunting task was making the ranch completely self-sufficient by building a wind farm to provide electricity. Since there was no shortage of available land, and there was a relatively constant wind since they were located in the foothills of a larger mountain range, The challenge was finding a location and installation plan that would provide the least amount of visibility to outsiders, as George called the general public. He didn't want to broadcast to the entire world that his property had electricity. After meeting with several contractors and looking at numerous models, George struck a deal with an upstart new company that had a unique take on harnessing the wind. As luck would have it, they were also looking for investors. These cutting-edge windmills eschewed the traditional long blades in favor of a compact turbine-style mechanism. Not being an engineer, George quickly got lost in the detailed explanations, but what he understood was that the units concentrated the incoming air with a horn-like intake, and the air accelerated through the device, blowing over a collection of blades. When you looked into the front of the unit, it resembled a turbofan engine. And the engineers explained that it worked based on similar principles, although the physics were reversed. Not only was the company in desperate need of funding, they also did not have much in the way of practical testing, so the eventual partnership was perfect. George would get his turbines, testing and providing valuable data while powering his ranch, and the company would get the investment it needed to continue operations. After three years, George had a fully functioning wind farm that not only provided more than enough electricity to power the ranch and the cement depot, but there was enough excess power to charge a large array of lithium-ion batteries that would store up to three months' worth of electricity. Each of the three freshwater wells also had two dedicated turbines to pump fresh water to the tanks he had installed into a hill high enough to provide gravity-fed freshwater throughout the property. The existing irrigation system already had a pumping station at the lake. All George needed to do there was add a single turbine connected to a battery array to power it. Diesel-powered generators were also placed at all three wells and near the lake as a last resort backup system. For the next three years, George oversaw all of the preparations personally. He did this not only because he wanted to know everything there was to know about the ranch and its operations, but also because he needed something to be obsessive about. He was educating his kids, spending three to four days a week teaching, and the rest of his time planning and building up the ranch. But he was still not busy enough to block out the pain from losing his wife. It worked well for the first three years, but he knew that for the next phase of his operation, he would need help. That help came in the form of the man who had served as the general manager of the ranch before George purchased it. Ernie Navarro had called George shortly after the purchase and offered his services. The two met several times after the purchase, yet George was ambivalent about hiring him. But the more he thought about it, the more he liked the idea of having someone who showed such loyalty to the previous owners and such persistence. At first... Ernie's main responsibilities remained overseeing the ranching and farming operations. Previously, the ranch had about 600 head of cattle, 300 sheep, and a couple of hundred goats. George laughed at the idea of the goats, but Ernie explained that the goats were used primarily for brush clearance. Since they were basically allowed to roam freely throughout the property, they were also bait for predators like the mountain lions that roamed the area. It was much easier for the lions to stalk, hunt, and eat the goats than it was for them to target the more valuable sheep and cattle. Throughout the first three years, Ernie became more and more valuable, providing keen insights into the best areas of the property for the wind farm, water storage, and even the optimal placement of the cement depot. Throughout this time, Ernie impressed George not only with his knowledge of the property, but also with his understanding of subjects ranging from sustainable farming to construction. George had spent much of his free time over the previous three years studying historic forts and the battle spot to defeat them during conflicts. Through his research, he became increasingly obsessed with the story of Fort Wagner, a small fort in South Carolina that was infamous during the Civil War for the bloody battle that left almost 2,000 dead. The fort itself was small, measuring only 250 yards long by 100 yards wide, but it was protected by the ocean on one side and an impassable swamp on the other, leaving a narrow passage less than 100 yards wide as the only direct path to the fort. Within the walls, there was a bomb shelter that was dug into the ground and then covered by 10 feet of sand. This shelter was able to shield as many as 1,000 of the 1,700 soldiers stationed at the fort from the withering barrage of cannon fire from the Union Army. By the end of the days-long battle, the Union Army had lost over 1,500 soldiers, while Fort Wagner had lost only 36. While the fort was eventually abandoned by the South after a prolonged siege, it was never taken in battle, and this was the most important thing to George. By making the ranch completely self-sufficient, it would be able to survive a siege of any length. Indeed, the inhabitants of his ranch would be able to survive and thrive for years without ever having to leave the property. Attackers, on the other hand, would run out of fresh food and water long before the people on the ranch would even notice the effects of any siege. The challenge would be to build a fort that would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to take by force. He had enough trust in Ernie that he felt like he could reveal his true motivations behind his efforts to transform the property, but he was still filled with trepidation when he finally told Ernie about his theory that the world as they knew it would be coming to a frightful end.